0: Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. This is the first time I'm preaching here. And I know for some of you, this is going to be a strange sound of accents, blending in, hitting here and there. You might not hear my r's, but they are still there. Yeah. So um, I hope that, Lord willing, we will be blessed by the Lord. So if you will just focus on the word, I think you will be blessed. Um, Well, greetings from my wife, who is not here, unfortunately or fortunately, by the providence of God, um, but uh, she had to stay at home in order to take care of our two boys who are not well. I think our elder mentioned that. But we are delighted to share fellowship. With you. I want to thank uh, in a very special way Pastor Chuck as well as Pastor Sean for um, giving me this invitation to come and share this time with you. I'm also thankful to the Unruhs uh, for their hospitality. I think there's some, uh, at, le- at least there's one more family that I know of here, and I'm delighted to see all of you. May God bless us. I invite you now to turn with me uh, in your copies of the Holy Scriptures to Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 22, and I'll be reading from verses 14 to 34 to start with. Luke 22, 14 to 34. Luke 22, 14 to 34. Let's hear God's holy word. When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to debate among themselves which one of them it was who was going to do this. And a dispute also developed among them as to which one of them was regarded as being the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles domine over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way for you. Rather, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at a table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at a table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are the ones who have stood by me in my trials. Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table In my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you men like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster would not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Amen. With our Bible still open, let's look to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father and our God, we are grateful for this privilege of coming before you. We thank you for this Lord's Day, and what a day that you have granted that we can worship you and fellowship with your people. I pray, O Lord, for special mercy and plead that you cleanse our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would come in a special way and speak to the souls of your people. And to those who do not know you, Lord, grant that the word of the living God might be open to that heart. Lord, I pray that you would come and do the work which you alone can do. And Lord, give us grace that we may praise you with great delight in the end. For we ask in Jesus' holy name and for his sake. Amen. If you have studied the Gospels for any length of time, I think that one of the things that you would see about the Gospels is the evidence that our Lord Jesus Christ was committed to his ministry. He was committed to minister to the, to the people that he was called to, to serve. In fact, Matthew tells us in chapter 20 verse 28 that Christ came not to be served or ministered to, but to minister and to give his life. A ransom for many. Well, today my burden in bringing to you God's word is to remind you about this truth of Christ's ministerial focus. And I'll be doing that from Luke's gospel. In chapter 22 of this gospel, what Luke does is to bring to us Christ's own words about his ministry to sifted souls. Many believe that these words were made just hours before the trials that he had to go through, and subsequent crucifixion that he, he was put through on the cross. At that time, our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read, had just instituted the Lord's Supper, upon which he was moved to make these statements. And while these words were really focused on Peter and the disciples, I think that There's no doubt that these words were made with a larger purpose in mind. And I say this because if you would focus on verses 31 and 32 especially, you will see that this really speaks to the very ethos of the ministry of Christ. And it's based on that that I bring to you this message entitled, Christ's Ministry to the Sifted Souls. Christ's Ministry to Sifted Souls. Now, to help us focus on this theme, we'll be dividing our study into two parts. The first is to look at the special need for Christ's ministry to sifted souls. The special need for Christ's ministry to sifted souls. And secondly, what we'll do is that we'll look at the specific nature of this ministry of Christ to sifted souls. So there are two things. The special need of Christ's ministry to sifted souls, and then the specific nature of this ministry of Christ to sifted souls. I pray that the Lord will use this to stir up our hearts and to give us a better appreciation of Christ and his ministry for his glory and honor. So, look then with me into the text, and here I would urge you to look at verse 31. Because we'll be really focusing on verses 31 and 32. But let's start with verse 31, where our Lord, we we are told, said this. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you men as wheat. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you men as wheat. These friends, beloved, are very important. They are very crucial. Why? Because they give us insight into the special need for the ministry of Christ, for every one of us. Why is Christ's ministry so important and necessary? Why is Christ's ministry something of a necessity to all of us? Well, this text indicates to us a number of reasons, and we'll look at two of them. Number one, Christ's ministry is important because... Because of the sinful worker outside of us. Because of the sinful worker outside of us. And here, friends, I cannot help but to emphasize that here the Lord is actually acknowledging a reality that some Christians even don't like to acknowledge. He's acknowledging the reality of Satan as the sinful worker. He refers to Satan As not an abstract entity, Satan is not something of the fiction of someone's imagination, as some people like us to believe. Rather, he refers to Satan as a real, a real person, a real person with a real intent, a real work. The reality of Satan is without doubt in the Bible, beloved. In fact, if you read through the scriptures, you would see that he is often referred to in many ways and with different names. Here he is called Satan. Now, the meaning of the word Satan is actually adversary or, if you like, accuser. But in other parts of the Bible, he is also referred to as Beelzebub, for example. The devil, the old serpent, the great dragon. I think the Lord Jesus here is actually referring to Satan here by this name, adversary, Satan, because he wants to remind us that this entity, this very person, is not just the enemy of God, but also the enemy of human souls. You see, in this text, friends, Satan's method of action is clear. He is seeking to do harm. And by the way, this seeking is not done by, by some harmless request. As we read in the text, we are told that he was doing this by urging and egging and demanding. He comes to God demanding. Satan pursues his aims with earnestness and demand. Yes, he knows that he cannot do this without the permission of God. But then when he stands before God, he doesn't do it as though he's just simply, you know, begging, as though he would not do anything about it. But he comes demanding, even contending. We see this in Job. We also see this in Jude, where we are told that the devil was contending for the body of Moses. Satan demands. But there's something more we can point out about Satan's work here. And this is where we should make a particular clarification. Because, you see, when we read the text, when we read this verse, verse 31, there's a tendency for us to sometimes read it as though Satan only pursued Peter. When we read this, it's as though we are reading this. Satan demanded to have Simon, that he may sift Simon. Because when we read it, it's as though the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to Simon as the you. And so we read it as though it's like this. Satan has demanded to sift you. But as you have read me read from the version that I read this morning, that is not the actual reference. Satan demanded to have not just Simon, but all the disciples. The original is not a singular you; it's a plural. And that's why in the version that I read, the NASB version that I read, it inserts the word there, And that's why, by the way, if you read the authorized version, it speaks of you, not thee. Satan demanded to have all the disciples. And that's his plan. That's his action. His demands are still with a massive focus. He demands to have as many as he possibly can. He demands to have men. He demands to have women. The young, the old, the pious, the irreligious, individual believers, as well as churches. He demands to have you. He demands to have control, not just part of you, but all of you. And yet, note again, friends, that Satan's demand was not some pipe dream. He was not just asking God of something which was so lofty and ideal that in the end, he would just go and sit by the beach and cross his leg and then maybe enjoy the, the sun. No, that was not his intent. If you read the text very carefully, we are told that the purpose for which he was demanding was to work. He demanded the souls of the disciples in order that he would sift them. And that's a very important term. I mean, to us of this day, that word sifting might not be too significant. Maybe I'm speaking to another crowd here who knows who know a little bit more about this. But this is a farming term. And I'm told in those days, because they didn't have the kinds of mechanisms that we have, they didn't have the combined harvesters that we have, in those days they will do that, well, manually, right? And so when they got their grains, they would get a sieve, put the grains there, and then they would have to manually shake, shake, shake it, shake it, so that they can separate the grain from the chaff. This is what is being referred here. Satan is demanded so that he would work out. Do his work to shake the faith of the believers. You see, God also sifts, by the way. But Satan's sifting is quite different. Because whereas God's sifting is always with good intent, whereas God's sifting is always that he might purge his people, Whereas God's sifting is always that he would be able to sort out and distinguish the righteous from the wicked. Whereas God's sifting is with a good intent, Satan's sifting is with an evil intent. He demands to sift in order that he would shake the faith of the people. So that he would trip people into eternal jeopardy. And that's the way he works. He sifts. He sifts. Satan sifts. Satan sifts through suggestions of doubts of God's word. like the way, he did in Eden. He sifts with sickness and severe losses so that he can inspire charges against God, like the case of Job. Satan sifts through self-aggrandizement. So that like David, we begin to wallow in our numbers and in our strengths and in our, our very possessions. He also sifts to make us recoil and to deny Christ like Peter would do. He is even willing to sift through evil passions so that if he can, he can cause us to betray Christ. And this is what he did through, through Judas. And still now he sifts. He sifts through lies and deceit. Even transforming himself as an angel of light. Deceiving people about their own true state and need. Blinding them so that they will not believe in the gospel. He gives comfort to men so that they delight in their works of religion. So that they delight in their carnal pleasures, their sciences, their philosophies, and by so doing lead them into devilish doctrines, doctrines of men, and if possible, to the drain of apostasy. And he's managed to succeed in many cases. And he has thousands of years of experience under his belt. And it is because of the presence and purpose of this sinful worker outside of us, Satan, the Beelzebub, the devil, that old serpent, that great red dragon, because of the purpose of this sinful worker outside of us, that is why the ministry of Christ It's not just important, but vital and necessary. The ministry of Christ is necessary for us because of the sinful worker outside of us. But the text also provides another reason for the need for Christ's ministry. We need Christ's ministry not just because of Satan, not just because of the sinful worker outside of us, But number two, because of the sinful weaknesses within us. Because of the sinful weaknesses within us. And I think that this is clear if we examine our Lord's statements about Peter. If also we look at Peter's own response, I think that this also becomes clear. Look with me in verse 31 again. You see how the Lord addresses Peter. He doesn't address him as Peter, but he calls him Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you men as wheat. This is really striking. It's really striking because, you see, our Lord himself called Simon another name. He named him Cephas or Peter. Now, Cephas or Peter is a very Very positive name, because it means stone. It means rock. It's a symbol of solidity. It's a symbol of firmness. It's a symbol of strength. However, the Lord does not address him by that name in this text. Our Lord did not call him by that name of strength and firmness and and stability. Instead, he called him by that original name that was given to Simon. Simon. Why? Because we are not told in the text, but I think that it is quite clear that what our Lord wanted Simon to see was to really register his own weaknesses. He wanted to bolster the point of Simon's weaknesses. Simon was so vulnerably weak. He was so weak and vulnerably weak, so as so that he could be sifted as wheat, just like any other human being. And interestingly, Simon later proved our Lord's point by his response. He will challenge the Lord, yes, but ultimately he will deny the Lord. And is the point that we are noting here, friends. It's important to note this. Because, you see, Simon had many good qualities. But he also had many great flaws. He was rash. He tended to be overconfident, even to the extent that he was actually willing to challenge and even rebuke Christ. Can you believe that? And yet, he was so short-sighted about his own weaknesses... Despite Christ's warning about Peter's own vulnerability of being sifted like others by Satan, despite that warning, Peter thought he was not that bad. He would tout, he would tout his loyalty as being much better than other disciples. He would prove not even able to watch in prayer ultimately, and ultimately, he will deny our Lord. With curses and oaths. Now it seems like I'm picking on Peter a lot. But if we look at the text very carefully, the truth is that the other disciples were no better. Here they were, close to the hour of our Lord's agony. Here they were, at the point where our Lord was going to suffer. And what were they doing? Well, they were disputing among themselves, they were quarreling. It seemed to us like a bitter dispute. What were they quarreling about? Was it about some text of scripture? Was it about some issue of doctrine? Was it about something of relevance spiritually? No, that was not the reason why they, they were quarreling. They were quarreling because they wanted to know who, which, which among them was the best and the greatest. Here they were, coming right from the Lord's Supper. Can you believe that? They were striving among themselves about who was the greatest. And also for all of them, by the way, they also pledged there to be with Christ. If you read Matthew 26, it tells us. They pledged to the Lord Jesus Christ that they would not leave him. But soon after, they all run off. And so, you see, the problem is not just about Peter and his weaknesses. The problem is also about the disciples. In fact, the problem is also about all of us. Why? Because if we are honest with ourselves, we will confess that we are not any better. We are also weak. We are also rash. We are also foolish. Yes, I use that word. We are foolish because we tend to be overconfident in ourselves. We think we can do much better and know much better. We think we are spiritually better than others. But the truth is that we are all sinful and in need of a saving and healing ministry. And you see, there's none that can help us but Christ. And that is why we need his ministry. We need Christ's ministry, not only because of that sinful worker outside of us, but also because of the sinful weaknesses within us. And this text proves it. Here we are, so weak within. Here we are, so full of dangers because of that sinful worker outside of us. These are the reasons why we need Christ's ministry. And thank God that the text doesn't only show our need, but it also shows the solution to our need. The solution to our need is Christ himself and his work. The text shows three specific things about the nature of Christ's ministry for which it helps and is essential for our thriving The text firstly tells us that this ministry of Christ is prophetic in nature. It's prophetic in nature. Now, you don't need to go far to prove this. See the way the Lord himself gives this mysterious revelation in verse 31. If you read verse 33, he goes on to give a prediction about uh, Simon. And that prediction, by the way, came to pass. And the question is that, how did the Lord know this? How did the Lord know this? Obviously, as God, he knows it all. But you see, he came not just as God, but he came as the God-man. And he knew this because as God-man, in his humiliation as man, he knew this as the prophet sent from God. This was the same one Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. To him you shall listen. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. And Christ fulfilled this. He fulfilled this in his earthly ministry. How did he do so? Well, he fulfilled this by foretelling and foretelling. God's word. He foretold God's word concerning things that would come to pass, but he foretold God's word so that we might know what God would have us to do. Indeed, he is the very revelation of God's word, and this is what he did throughout his earthly ministry, and he has not stopped since. After even his ascension, we are told in the, uh, the Psalms that he ascended up on high, he gave gifts unto men. Paul expounds on this, that he gave these gifts, including prophets and pastor-teachers. And through the prophets, we have the word of God in its complete canon. But through the pastor-teachers, we have the blessing of this prophetic word being unveiled to us so that we are actively made, made uh, to, to actually uh, uh, enjoy of the richness of these words through the scriptures. Friends, as the prophet, Christ reveals to us knowledge. He reveals to us knowledge because of our ignorance. So that we might know and be warned. As a prophet, Christ reveals to us our true weaknesses and our sinful state. But as a prophet, Christ also reveals to us our true enemies. He reveals to us our our dangers. He reveals the path and place of salvation. And he encourages us and assures us of the blessings that we receive when we go to that place of safety. And he does this through his living written word. And today we have access to it through the Bible that we have. Either through your phones or through the copies of scriptures that you hold physically. Christ is the great prophet. He is the great prophet. The nature of his ministry, it is prophetic. And we have access to that but I wonder whether we really heed to this prophetic ministry. Do we? Do we listen to the Lord in his word? Do we heed to him at all? When we read from his word, laying forth to this ministry that he's graciously given to us, do we bind them in our hearts? Or is it that we... We just reject it because we know better. We reject it because maybe we think that it is a word for a bygone era. We reject it because we think we are not just people who know better, but we are actually better. All oh, may the thoughts of Christ's prophetic ministry cause us to humble ourselves to receive God's word. Our Lord's ministry is prophetic in nature. But it isn't just prophetic in nature. As we read through the text, we are also told in verse 32 that it is priestly in nature. Yes, it's prophetic in nature, but it's also priestly in nature. It's priestly in nature. You see in the Old Testament, there was this office of the priest. And the priest would do at least two things, but he does those two things because he's meant to be a mediator, a go-between. And in doing that, that mediation, he would sacrifice and then he would supplicate. He would pray for people. He would sacrifice on their behalf. Well, in the passage, Christ does these two things. And here specifically, we are reminded of the second part. We read of him telling Simon that he has prayed for him. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. I have prayed for you, that's what Christ says, that your faith will not fail. Now There are three things about Christ's intercession in that text. It was providential. It was not just some afterthought. It wasn't just some slip. He knew that Peter would need his sustaining grace. And he provided that. He provided that even before Peter would fall. Christ's intercession was providential. But it was also particular. It was also preserving. It was particular and preserving. You see, friends... When we read there in verse 32 that Christ prayed for you, that you there actually, it's a singular. Christ was telling Simon in particular that I have prayed for you, Simon, for thee. In the authorized version, it says so. Christ prayed particularly for Simon. It wasn't as though Simon was jumbled into the basket of everybody and Christ prayed for them. As a massive number of people. No, no. Christ prayed for him personally. And he prayed with the purpose of preserving him so that his faith will not fail. That word fail means that it will not cease. His faith will not cease. See, friends, such is the intercessory prayer of Christ for all his people. They have been providentially and particularly made. They've been particularly made because we read in John 17 that Christ prays for his people distinct from the world. And they've been done with the preservation of these people in mind. Christ prays on behalf of sinful and sifted souls because, you see, friends, we are by nature alienated from God. There are imperfections in the best of our services. But he stands on our behalf before God. And through those righteous merits of his, through his precious blood, he stands before God and prays for us. He prays for us so that we will be accepted before him. And that's a comfort, friends. It's a comfort for us to know that Christ prays for us and he has prayed for us. It's a comfort if we are fighting and struggling with assurance. I thank God that I have a high priest who has prayed for me. He's prayed for me that my faith will not cease. You see, friends, if it were left to me, if it were left to me, I don't know how I could even survive the next second. Every second will come with some fear within me thinking that I would fail and perhaps not be able to stand before God because I have not prayed a prayer of forgiveness from him because of my failures and my wantonness and my weaknesses. Oh, but Christ has prayed for me. And because of that, my security is affirmed in him. It's affirmed not because of my prayers, but because of his prayers. It's affirmed not because of my righteousness, but because of his righteousness and those bleeding wounds of sacrifice stand on my behalf before the living God. And this should be a great comfort to all of us. We should be comforted that our Lord fulfills this priestly role of intercession. Therefore, dear beloved, if you are a believer here, be comforted. Be comforted in these things. Especially when you go through afflictions. Because sometimes afflictions really hit us sore. Why? Because Satan will come and shake our faith. And for that reason, we might tend to think that we've been forsaken by the Lord. Oh, but friend, Christ has not forsaken you. He has prayed for you. For Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised from life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Romans 8 tells us, Oh, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, oh, no tongue, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue, no tongue. Are you an unbeliever here? You see what I'm talking about? I have such a one who stands on my behalf, who has assured all these things. Why do you reject such a person Who is willing to save you? Why do you see the peril around you that I've talked of? The reality of this this person called Satan, the accuser, the devil, who seeks to destroy you. Why will you see that reality and yet see that, that blessed hope that you can get and still turn away from that hope and reject it? Why will you do so There is one who is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He has offered that acceptable sacrifice of himself that you can ever, ever, ever get. He's fulfilled and met the justice of God. And even now, he lives to intercede for sinners. Why don't you trust him? Why don't you trust him? He is able to save forever those who come to him through his own merit. He lives to make intercession for them. And that blessed hope still stands for you. And you should trust in that. Our Lord's ministry is prophetic. It's priestly in nature as well. But there's a third point and a final point here. The text also demonstrates that our Lord's ministry is powerful in nature. This is clear from the authoritative words of promise and commission that we see in verse 32. You see, when the Lord said that he had prayed for Peter, he didn't just say that he prayed for him, that his faith would not fail. But he added something to it. He added words of authority with promise, and with commission. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. That's what he said. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is a word of authority, with promise. It's not like the Lord is saying that if you turn back. He's not just saying that, oh, maybe you might turn back. He's saying that when, when, when you have turned back. You see, Christ could give this authoritative promise. Why? Because he had the power to draw and uphold and deliver Peter and to turn Peter back again. Ah, This could be another sermon on its own. But if you trace through the scriptures, you see Christ's power displayed. Why? Because as Peter was driven further and further away, warming himself in the fire of sinners, oh, when he had denied the Lord three times, we are told that he remembered the word of Christ and he saw that look of power from Christ. And when he was so down and forlorn, thinking that perhaps all hope was gone, Christ sent that word of power through his angel that Peter would be strengthened about the fact that he would meet him. And then at the sea of Tiberius, Christ himself came personally with a word, the gracious word reminding Peter of the call that he's given to him. All by that word of power of Christ. As you read that text, you see not just a promise, but you see a commission, which is also authoritative. In those words, we are told by Christ to to, to Peter when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Of course, it's only the work of a superior power that can raise a crushed, wounded warrior. But it's also only the word of a superior power that can restore, restore the wounded warrior back to position. And that's what Christ's work did. His word was sent in order to give that commission to show Peter that he will be restored. By which power? By Christ himself. By His power, our Lord restored Peter to a place of usefulness after he was turned back. Peter was used to lead the disciple in the apparel. Peter was used to preach that sermon on the day of Pentecost, by which 3,000 were saved. And even still now, Peter is being used by the restorative power of Christ. Why? Because, as we read First and Second Peter, we see the Lord using him to restore many unto himself. All by the power of Christ. All by the power of Christ. Beloved, we have a Savior whose ministry is powerful. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And in his kingly power, he rules in the midst of his enemies. He rules to the extent that not even Satan can withstand him. Not even sin or death can withstand him. He is the one who convinces and subdues and draws and upholds and delivers and preserves us to his heavenly kingdom. And so are you weak? Perhaps even burdened with sin? Perhaps you are feeling somewhat of a weakness because you are unable to deal with sin? Is that your state right now? Are you feeling helpless? Well, Christ can rescue you. He can rescue you with his power. He will give you that strength that you need. He will give you that restoration that you need. Look unto him for that grace to turn from sin. And he will enable you by his sovereign power to be delivered to serve the living God. Or perhaps you know someone at home or maybe one of your relatives who for some reason has forsaken the gospel and you think there's no hope for that person, Christ has the power to restore. Christ has the power to give that strength that is required to bring that person to wholeness. Perhaps you may be facing some burden, some burden by which you feel incapacitated to handle, which might not be about salvation or some kind of spiritual rescue. Maybe something else. Well, there's a king who is all powerful. He can subdue all things to himself, not just the spiritual things, even those physical things. He subdues all things by that word of his power. He is the king of glory. He is the king of grace. Why don't you just lay that burden at his feet in prayer? He is the Lord whose ministry is of power. He alone can build and restore. Oh, may the Lord use these words to help us to see the need of Christ's glorious ministry in the face and presence of Satan. May the Lord help us to see Christ's glorious ministry and its necessity in the face of the prevalence of our own sin. May the Lord grant us the grace that we would rest on Christ and his ministry, drawing from it the richness of its prophetic usefulness, drawing from it the blessings of its priestly nature, drawing from it the greatness and the blessings of the power by which it flows. May the Lord bless these words for his name's sake. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words. We are grateful for the source of encouragement that it gives to us as we read it thousands of years after it has been given. I pray that you stir up our hearts as we come before you and seek to partake of this table that you have instituted. Pray that, Lord, you'd help us to remember that we have a Savior who is the great High Priest, whose name is love, whoever lives to intercede for us. For we ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake.